Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. back everybody to hashing it out as always i'm your host dr Corey petty my trusted co-host colin couche say hello everybody colin hello everybody colin nice and yes. today we are going to talk about geth that uh, we have uh, martin and peter here with uh, the geth team to discuss uh all things geth the recent massive release of 1.9 the features within and then just kind of uh talk shop around what it's like to build um a Ethereum implementation, a client implementation of running consensus and all the things inside Geth that, that make this network run. So welcome to the show. Um, why don't we start off by Thank you. allowing you to introduce yourselves. And so Martin and Peter, uh, how did you get into the space and um, what do you do? Martin, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so as far as how I got into the space, so I was, I've been uh, doing programming and information security uh, for a number of years and uh, got kind of, um, yeah, I was working as a consultant and then as a, a full-time employee working with information security and application security and uh, got kind of bored with that and discovered this whole new Ethereum thing, which uh, was so awesome that it blew my mind. And... Uh, I got into it by during POC9, there was this bounty program where, where we could um, get uh, get rewards for finding consensus vulnerabilities in the clients. And I figured how hard can it be? And it turns out it was pretty, pretty darn difficult. Uh, and it got me to reading all the source code for Aleph and for, well, it wasn't called Aleph at that time, but CPP Ethereum and the Python client and the Go Ethereum client uh, to try to find discrepancies. And I kept doing that and just learning the code. I learned, basically learned Go programming by auditing the, the Go Theorem code base. And uh, yeah, uh, one thing led to the other. And later on, after the DAO hack happened, uh, the foundation was without a security, security person, a dedicated security person. Uh, so I, that's how I got into the foundation. And then I kind of gradually just uh, more and more merged into the Go Ethereum team and gradually started becoming one of the developers of the clients. Nice. Peter? Hey all, uh, really nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. So as for me, um, well, I came from a more, I would well, let's say academic background. Essentially, I just graduated university. I was doing my PhD in, um, I, I was mostly working on a decentralized messaging system and um, while that was kind of cute, it was an open source project. You can probably find it if, you, if you're, you're really curious. But uh, it didn't really go anywhere, mostly because I couldn't sustain it. So I started looking for alternatives. And essentially, I was trying to find a job that is somehow revolves around uh, 
distributed systems. I, I wasn't really hoping to find decentralized systems. And I was really hoping to find something that actually was written in Go because I was a Go fanatic at that time. And one thing led to the other, I kind of contacted Jeff and he offered me, a, I think it was a trial period to, to try to get onto the Geth team. And yeah, from there on, uh, I just got stuck to the Geth team. And that was about four and a half years ago. So uh, it's really interesting that uh, from, I could say that uh, Go Ethereum is my first actual real job that I ever had. Although I did do internships before that in various places. It's a hell of a first job, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got to start somewhere, though. I mean, <laughs> it seems like you had the background for it, so and you're doing a great job, so I appreciate it. So, yeah, uh, speaking of the great job, get 1.9. First, let's, what a monster. Let's, let's, let's oh, back you got off. It, you, you want to back off a bit? Let's okay, back off. And just go for it. What is Geth? I thought I had a great second. What does it do? But let's let's like for those that don't know, everyone knows what it is. But I would rather hear it from the horse's mouth on what it is and what it does. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's really interesting that um, every time we do a major Geth release, uh, one of the first comments on Reddit is that "What the heck is Geth?" So I think it's a valid question, uh, especially since Ethereum is kind of growing. So um, in short, uh, Ethereum is kind of uh, this decentralized network of computers that uh, run transactions, et cetera, et cetera. But um, even so, there are a lot of components, a lot of dApps that you can use to interact with the network, but there's also the network itself that somebody has to run it. So if you, if you essentially want to access your little dApp via MetaMask, that's just a browser, and that browser needs to communicate with something. And essentially, that something is the Ethereum network. And Geth is one of the multiple programs that that sustains that network, basically that runs that network. So it's um, yeah, I guess that's mostly it. So it's just um, a lot of nodes in the network, the software for for the for the network itself. I'd call that a humble introduction to Geth, but uh, wow. it's a good start. <laughs> um, Okay, call it. Now's a good time to ask that question, I'd say. Hey, man. Great job on 1.9. Geth is awesome. You guys do amazing work. I appreciate you. <laughs> thank you for being here, and thank you for everything that you do. Now, thank you. actually, I got a, a, another side question based off what you said. So without Geth, is there an Ethereum network? Yes. So with, how would the network exist without the client? So Well... Uh, go ahead. Yeah. So, like, yes, parody existed after Geth, but like this, this is kind of the thing that kickstarted it, ain't it? So, at the beginning, there were three, I would say. Uh, there was CPP Ethereum, there was Go Ethereum, and there was uh, Pi Ethereum. Oh, that's right. I remember, I remember CPP and Pi now. Okay, cool. And I think it was kind of uh, 40 40 Geth, CPP, and 20 Python. I don't know. If, I mean, Peter, do you have a better figure? But it was something no. to that effect, right? Honestly, I didn't give a damn about that part. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 yeah. So so in the beginning there were three. Out of those, um, there is really only Geth. I mean, CPP Ethereum kind of still lives in Aleph, uh, but it's not being used a lot on mainnet today. And what, what is specifically was attractive about Go uh, over CPP, which, by the way, is a more common language. 
and has a lot longer history, though it's a lot more insecure. Um, or, no, it's not. Naturally, it's not insecure, but you can make more mistakes in C++ yeah. by far. Um, is that what made you guys made the community kind of get behind Geth and Go as a language? No, no. no. So if you so essentially, when I joined Ethereum, uh, it was in April 2015, I think. Uh, essentially, then Python was already this kind of research client, which was kind of slowish, kind of. Well, Vitalik was hacking on it, but at back back at that point in time, uh, mostly everybody was using CPP. And then Go was this underdog that tried to try to take a slice of the pie. And uh, the first thing that really struck me is uh, that I wanted to compare some features. I was working on the networking protocol, and I wanted to run a CPP node and a Go node and see what the heck is not working. And after half a day, I gave up because I couldn't build it. So if you ask me, that was the nail in the coffin of CPP Ethereum that it was semi-impossible for a developer. And actually, I was pre previously, I was developing in C++, so it wasn't something new. And I couldn't build it, or it was really extremely painful to build it. And then I think this oh, is... OK, OK. So it's more like a design choices early on in the project that kind of led to it being difficult for developers to actually get onboarded. Yes. So, so I would say this is, from my perspective, this was probably the biggest reason why people started using uh, Geth over the other ones. But the other reason was that um, simply Go is a newer language, so we could ship features faster. And then it was uh, it was just simply for us, it was uh, easier to develop new stuff. And then it was always a bit, of, a bit ahead of CPP Ethereum after it caught up, because originally CPP was the best client. Gotcha. OK. And it's come a long way since uh, since I first used, used it. I don't even remember what the first version I used was. Um... It was a long time ago, um, but uh, it's now up to 1.9, and 1. this 9. release... 1.9.1, that's of yesterday? Oh, for real. Um, four hours. And it's got some features people have been asking about for a very long time. Um, most significantly is the, uh, the performance uh, features um, dealing with uh, syncing times. Uh, so can we go over some of the challenges that people were facing prior to 1.9 uh, with regard to syncing and disk size and storage size um, and some of the design decisions that you made to make fast sync faster and archive sync like tremendously faster, um, as well as reduce some of the storage size on, on the disk? Well, uh, that's quite that's, a big yeah. question. <laughs> Tell the whole story. We want to hear it. Yeah. Start from the beginning. Yeah, so I guess the, the reason why 1.9 took half a year and the reason why there are so many features in it is because we want to do some major database reorganizations and it just took that much time. So usually we try to ship every feature the moment it's done. We just merge it in and ship it. But this one was, this whole database reorg got so messy that uh, we had to postpone and keep postponing it. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's also that effect that we, if we know that feature A requires a, a non-backwards compatible database upgrade. So we save it for a major release. And then we know that, hey, feature B is going to need that well as well. So we might as well do that one at the same time and try to get all the non-backwards compatible changes in. Uh, so it kind of becomes this big mountain of things that we want to ship at the same time also. 
Yeah, it's, it's definitely like the, the best case scenario for any any set amount of features that are going to break backwards compatibility. Just ship them all at once, so you only have to break it once. So the like because I, and, and as people run nodes um, within the network, you want to make sure that they're staying within consensus with each other, especially on blockchains, right? And you want to make sure that if if there is a breaking issue. We're trying to get get to the point, like get to the the main crux of running blockchain nodes. It's it, you have to be very careful when breaking compatibility, especially maybe with consensus rules. This is more of a database issue, but um, any any issue discrepancy between clients on the network could lead to drastic consequences. Did you have any problems or feelings like that could be the case in the process of trying to do some of these database upgrades? Um, so. I wouldn't say I, we weren't really afraid of consensus issues. What we were afraid is um, kind of like data availability. Because let's suppose that uh, we change the database formats, we delete a lot of stuff that we think are redundant. And uh, in the process, we kind of make a tiny bug, which kind of deletes something that it shouldn't delete, a bit more information than needed. And then all of a sudden, you lose that node, or that node bec may become completely useless because it's missing some data. But the only way to then to fix it is to do a resync, which is really painful. So it's, um, I mean, the fallout can be fairly big. With, for example, if you have a, a simply a consensus issue, okay, simply that sounds a bit weird, but <laughs> you know, if you only have a consensus issue, then uh, depend if it if it's only in the new version, then maybe you can try uh, downgrading, or uh, or if it's a, it is a legitimate consensus issue, we can issue a new update, and then you update and it's done. But so it's fairly fast. However, if we manage to screw up the database, then game over. You have to resync. That can take, depending on, suppose that you're running an archive node, you synced for 60 days, and then we ruin your database. You're going to be really pissed. Yeah, I think uh, what may inform the, the remainder of a lot of the uh, conversation after this is the discrepancy, which is this is often um, heavily mis. Uh, miscommunicated or or misunderstood within the entire blockchain ecosystem. The differences between um, nodes in Ethereum and why, like what what the discrepancy is between a full node, a light node, and an archive node, and and why people get that wrong so much. Yeah. We, okay. Uh, we're getting a bit into a different topic here, but I guess they they somewhat do touch each other. So I guess. Um, I guess there are three major nodes in Ethereum. One of them is called an archive node. Most people run a full node, and then you have light nodes. And uh, a lot of other communities try to always attack Ethereum that an archive node is humongous. And they are kind of right. An archive node is, I think, around 3 terabytes currently. But the point of an archive node is that it's kind of almost a block explorer. So an archive node not only has the entire blockchain available, but it also has all kinds of various indexes. It can query arbitrary data in the past. Um, for example, you can trace transactions from the past. It has all the all the states. So essentially, it's like this uh, mini uh, block explorer that just needs a user interface on top. Maybe not the fastest, but it is a full. It can be used as a full block explorer. But you don't really need all that data to run Ethereum. And the whole Ethereum database, I mean, the, the data that is inside the chain, that is significantly smaller. And the full node is, uh, is so compared to an archive node, a full node is kind of 
similarly an Ethereum node, but instead of keeping all that index, all that data that allows you to explore the past chain, it discards it. It still retains the chain itself, just doesn't retain the, the capability to explore it after a certain point of time. And this one is significantly smaller. And one thing that I would like to emphasize that full nodes still maintain a lot of indexes to, to make their operation fast that are unneeded. For example, we could um, we have a, a feature pending that will be able to cut down a further 20 gigabytes from the state database of a full node, and it will still be a full node with every functionality available. So it's so the uh, TX index you're talking about? Yep. Yeah, so the index is so a user can take a hash for transaction and uh, get info on when that transaction was executed uh, in what block and stuff. Interesting. I was, yeah. kind of, I was kind of curious about how you get those. Those. I, mean, I guess you can continue with the light client. That's just basically not holding the blockchain, just all the headers of the blockchain. Correct. Yeah. So, so the light client is. Uh, it kind of relies on the full node. So, it instead of retaining the chain, it just uh, keeps the headers around. And then, whenever something it needs something, it knows that okay, the header contains a hash, and based on that hash, we can request it from arbitrary nodes, and we will be able to prove whether that data that the remote node returned is valid or isn't valid. So a light client is perfectly secure, but um, but it re relies on other nodes to serve the data. Finally, for 1.9, you introduced the concept of the ultralight client, or, or you, you shipped the, the concept of the ultralight client. What's the difference there? Yeah, so the ultralight client has, that was mostly shipped um, by status, so they were working on it. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that uh, with the light client, uh, to validate the headers, you do proof of work checks. That's kind of how 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 blocks are validated to decide the state transitions. But the problem is that in Ethereum, the proof of work is expensive. I mean, it's really expensive. So to generate the the data structure to verify a proof of work on a powerful machine, currently it takes maybe three seconds. Now, three seconds is not much. Uh, that data structure is valid for I don't know five days, I think. So three seconds out of five days is is nothing. But uh, for example, my mobile phone, on my mobile phone, it takes about two minutes to generate the same data structure. So it's, uh, it's kind of painful and it will blow your battery out if you, if you keep doing proof of work validation, uh, verifications on mobile phones. And then the ultralight concept, the, the idea was that instead of um, checking the proof of work, you configure maybe five trusted servers, and then you get the digital signature from each of those five, ser five servers. And then you just check whether uh, all five servers signed the same header, and if yes, then you're happy and you assume that uh, they are correct. Of course, you lose, you you massively you lose a security this way. But let's suppose if one of those servers is Cloudflare, the other one is Infura, the third one is Status, the fourth is Ethereum Foundation, and fifth is Consensus. Then, uh, well, if all five of them collude to screw you over, then I mean it's game over anyway. Yeah, you've got, you've got a much more serious problem. So, anyway, I, just go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, revert back to your original question because I think that's kind of important on on how we might actually manage to do the performance uh, yeah. improvements in in Gath. So I kind of mentioned that um, there's the difference between the archive node and the full node is that the archive node contains a lot of indexes, a lot of the data whose sole purpose is to allow you to find other data fast and uh, one of the main features in Geth 1.9 uh, 
was that we actually went over every single index that we maintain or every single additional metadata and try to figure out whether it is indeed needed. Because um, originally the idea was that, okay, let's make full nodes as fast as possible so you can query data as fast as possible, which is nice. But as Ethereum grew, you kind of realized that um, maybe it's not that important to be able to query some data insanely fast, whereas it's, it might be much more important to, uh, to run longer, to store a lot less data. Well, and, uh, let's, let's, uh, see, that's an interesting thing for me. How, how was that decision process executed? Um, meaning, you, I don't, how many data points, first of all, are we looking at here that you probably were trying to evaluate? Just to give us an idea of scale. Uh, so, I'm, so essentially, I think, let me just check it Approximately, out. Yeah, that, yeah. we're talking dozens, we're talking hundreds. So, uh, for example, one of the heaviest things, so there are two extremely heavy things in the database currently. Mm -hmm. One of them is the state try, which is, let's leave that for a moment. So they are about maybe 300 something million data entries for the state try. But there's an, another one, which is really curious. That's the number of transactions. So on Ethereum mainnet, currently, according to Block Scout, there are about 506 million transactions. That's a big number. That's, uh, it means that uh, if I just store one byte for every transaction, that's already half a gigabyte. Now, well, obviously- wait, wait a minute, though. So you're talking about like when, when you said the data points, you tried to figure out what you reduce. I'm talking, I'm thinking like in the model of, of a single transaction. Is that correct? So are you having like thousands of, of data points in these models? Like million, like what do you, like, is that, is that an accurate way of understanding what you were saying? Uh, you, you mean how many data points per transaction? Yeah. Yeah. Is that kind of what's, what you were talking about when you said you were trying to go through each each data point and figure out what you could kind of reduce. It's talking about the model of the of the transaction. Like this is what this is what goes. This is how we're storing it in our in our in our chain data. Like, yeah, sorry, I misunderstood. So, uh, for example, with a transaction, you can store a couple information. Obviously, you have the the hash of the transaction, you have the content of the transaction, you have the receipts, but that's a different story. But then, for example, uh, hold on, Peter. Uh, just. Uh as an explanatory note so we there will always be i mean we have the block and the blocks contain the actual transactions somewhere oh yes 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 yeah 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 got it okay so the the actual transactions so, themselves of course would be stored yeah got it um and that's for validation purposes but um when you're talking about the data set the indexing essentially of the database yeah. that that indexing has overhead associated with it. So yes, you have the transactional data, but there's also the relational indexing that you're trying to do. So you could do like historical queries, like you mentioned earlier. Um, uh, and uh, that index has a, a overhead on disk space. Um, and I'm not sure how it affects sync time, but it appears to. Um, so uh, what I'm kind of curious about, because I feel like from the transaction data, couldn't you just build the sync? Like, uh, yourself actually that's something i never thought to ask before um yes. go ahead yeah so the the thing is that we let's suppose if we if we have the blocks in the database then we have the raw transactions but the problem is that users generally like to say that okay give me the transaction with this particular hash 
Now, the database, if I just store the blocks as is, the database has absolutely no clue how to find that uh, that hash or, or which block to look into. So our indexes previously contained that contained an inclusion information. So that for every transaction hash, we store that, okay, this transaction is included in this block at this particular offset, I mean, transaction offset at this particular block hash, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. And then if you look at it, so uh, if I, so our inclusion data, I think was block number, block hash, uh, transaction number. I think that's it. And a uh, similar one for receipts, right? Yes. I think we use the same thing. And so Not... when you said you went over every, every one of these data points to determine what was necessary and what wasn't necessary, yeah. well, first, what did you think, what did you decide to remove? Well, um, I get that. Okay. So, um, so essentially, for for example, for these transaction indexes, we had the block number, the the block hash, and the transaction number. But you realize that well, the block number and the block hash are kind of the same thing in for canonical blocks. So every block that is older than some number, if you store the block number, that's enough. You don't need the block hash because you don't care. If you if I know that it's in block one million, yeah, it has whatever hash. I don't care. So, for example, that immediately I can cut off 32 bytes from this index, 32 bytes multiplied by uh, 500 million, that's 16 gigabytes of data. Whoa. And just from that one little, that one little data point, the yes. whole thing improves that tremendously. That's yes. fantastic. You cut off 32 bytes, you cut off a single hash, and that's 36 gigs, sorry, uh, 16 gigs. So th these are... This is why I wanted to emphasize how many transactions you have because the data that you can save or waste is insane if you in, if you maintain something for so many data points. And another, for example, another aspect of of this when you're dealing with such a large number of, of transactions and then uh, indexes around those transactions is the performance of the database itself. Um, do you feel like the early early choices of how you've set up the models of these databases was um, maybe not like, like was it a good choice? And have you learned a lot of lessons in the process of trying to handle so much data and retrieving so much data over the years? Yeah. Um, well, there have been some. For example, there have been some redundancies that we got rid of over the years. There have been. For example, the log filtering was implemented with some mipmaps originally, which turned out, I mean, it, it looked okay when it was implemented and turned out to be horrible mm -hmm. at the current mainnet scale. And then we completely threw that out and replaced it. So, I mean, I don't think it was designed in a terrible way, but it was designed for, for a different world and nobody really knew in which direction Ethereum will grow. Yeah. And then we just need to, we just need to modify the, the storage to keep up with whatever mainnet's direction is. For example, uh, I think I brought it up previously. Uh, one thing that uh, that really bo still bothers me even now is that uh, 500 million transactions. And currently, a full node maintains, uh, still maintains a mapping that, okay, this 500 million transactions is included in whatever block number. And uh, that might seem like a really obvious, I mean, a really trivial thing to say that, okay, Geth knows that transaction X is in block Y, but knowing this single fact takes 20 gigs of, uh, of data storage that you need to store on SSD. And then, for example, what, 
it's a feature that we will ship either in the next release or maybe in a couple of releases, would be to allow you to set the most recent block number for which you want to actually store this data. For example, you, realistically, if you run your own full node, unless you want to actually dig up old transactions, do you really care who did what three years ago and whether a transaction hash that was included three years ago that you can find it or not? So most people won't care. So you could, in theory, say that, OK, you only care about the last one month's worth of transactions. You can dig up any transactions in that interval. And anything older, you just won't find. And so you can course, actually specify, is this part of the syncing process, or do you already have to have the full node before? And then is this like part of the, a feature of the freezer, which also was released in 1.9? Or is this a totally different feature that's going to be released later that allows us to sort of pick where we want to start syncing? Is that what I'm understanding? Um, it's completely different from the freezer and everything. It's independent of sync time. So this is just an index. So okay. you, uh, and the nice thing about it is that at any arbitrary point in time, you can uh, expand or contract this index. So you can say that, okay, you only care about the last 30,000 blocks, and then uh, we will uh, dynamically reduce this index and delete all the unneeded data. But then if you realize that, holy shit, I do care about the past one year, then you can change a command line flag, and then it will re-index the missing data without needing anything from the network. Oh, okay, I got it. Oh, that's great. Okay, cool. So it's maybe interesting to kind of uh, give like a, a quick explanation of how um, a node comes into sync in the first place. And basically, you want to rebuild. Um, if, you're, if you're starting a guest node from scratch, you don't have any data. You then have to query all the other nodes in the network for information piece by piece, building the blockchain, um, replaying the blockchain as it once was. And in the process of doing that, processing all those transactions and all the state transitions that happen. That's why doing it is so difficult for Ethereum because you have kind of like you have a lot more variability in how state transitions can actually happen, which limits the um, the like resource devices you can actually use to do this. And that's why like, making these changes and having all these configuration options is important, is because people you would like to for people to be able to run um, semi-secure or, or secure nodes on various commodity hardware. And, and it's very, very difficult to do this, to provide all these options and speed options and storage options simultaneously. Was that a question? I was like, I think <laughs> like, people don't quite understand how people build like from the start to get to the point of actually having a, a full node in sync. A full node in sync has replayed the entire blockchain. Well, I wouldn't agree with that, okay. actually. And that is because there's a misnomer going around. And that misnomer is that we have something called our, um, sync mode full. And the sync mode full means that it replays you know, from Genesis block by block until current head. Uh, and then there's the sync mode fast, which is the default one that Geth uses. Uh, and anything which has been synced either with sync mode fast or sync mode full is is would be called a full node. I mean, that's we when we say full node, we mean a node uh, which has the entire state. Um, and the difference between these two sync mode fast and sync mode full is just how they how they reach that final, um, yeah, how they reach the destination. Um, 
and it's counter very counterintuitive but but that's what i think is the general ex accepted term of a full node is something which has the entire state so either synced by fast mode or full mo full mode or even the parity warp sync mode is also full node do you agree peter yep so just a tiny expansion if somebody is not uh not aware of, for example, full or fast sync. Um, so in full sync, you just take the the blocks, you just retrieve the blocks from the network, you take block number 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, et cetera, sequentially, and you just apply one block after the other, processing all transactions. And um, the issue is that currently there are 505 million transactions, which mean that uh, it takes a shit ton of time to actually execute so many transactions since in Ethereum the transactions are actually arbitrary code executions. And the the bigger even the bigger problem is that it doesn't matter how fast it is today, if Ethereum will be here in five years time, it will be that much slower and that it, it will take five years more transactions. So you're you're constantly accumulating data and you cannot really expect people in five years, 10 years to just crunch through all the history because why? I mean, yeah. you could expect them, but it's not really realistic. And then the alternative is that instead of crunching through the data, let's just assume that the blocks are valid. I mean, if we have currently eight point something million blocks, then uh, there's a fairly small probability that block number one is invalid or block number two is invalid. So instead of actually executing them, let's just trust the first 8 million. Let's just download them blindly. I mean, we do verify proof of work, so people can't really give you complete junk, but let's just trust the blocks blindly. Let's download whatever the network says the state is at the a, a somewhat recent block, and then let's start executing blocks on top. And if- yeah, Binary clarification. So each block has uh, a state root in the block header. So each block, if you pr verify the proof of work, and thereby and, and say, okay, yeah, I, 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 I agree that this is probably a canonical block. Then it has uh, a, a cryptographic hash of what the state should be at that point in time. Yep. So essentially, if we trust, if we say that we trust block number eight million, then we know that uh, block number eight million has eight million has a specific hash, and we can assign up the specific root hash. That's the hash of the state, and then we can download um, that state from the network from arbitrary untrusted peers because we can always verify that the result that they gave us is corresponds to that particular hash. So as long as we are correct in trusting that particular header. Everything else can be cryptographically verified. So we can reconstruct the entire state and prove it that that corresponds to a specific header. Afterwards, we're going to execute a lot more blocks on top. So if everything was funky, then things will immediately fail. But, um, but we still do verify proof of work in advance. So uh, the only way, for example, to attack uh, FastSync would be to, to mine quite a large number of uh, of blocks at current uh, Ethereum mainnet difficulty. So essentially, you would need to mine, I think, 64 invalid blocks. I mean, 64 valid proof of work blocks. That's that's a huge amount of money to waste just to to attack somebody who is syncing at this exact point in time. 
because if they are syncing five minutes from now, they need different blocks. Or if they synced five minutes ago, they needed different blocks to be attacked. So it's unless you have an enormously a network capable of mining at at least 64 times the capacity of Ethereum mainnet, it's it's almost impossible to pull off this attack. Yeah, okay. that's not happening. I mean, maybe a state actor somewhere, you know, could probably pull it off, but it would be also obvious to the network. Like somebody will pick up on it and then they get caught and then it would kind of devalue the whole thing. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, th there's a lot we need to cover today and we're kind of on a hard cap. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to go over Freezer and Clef and I'd like to talk over uh, the GraphQL decision and oh, God, there's so much I want to cover. Yeah, we're I, short, short on time. Like the first maybe... 5% of the block. Yeah, of and I really I want to cover to, Clef. Like, I really wanted I really, to give really, us really a good really base to stand on before we went on. Yeah, I really want to cover Clef um, a, a little bit in the, in the wallet situation. So uh, maybe we could uh, talk about what it takes to support some of these wallets. Um, like what, it, what does support mean? I think is it's just a question that, you know, uh, I think people I, I originally had, I kind of understand now, but maybe you could explain to me when you say you support different hardware wallets what does that entail uh, well that that entails implementing the driver communication over usb with uh, whatever hardware wallet there is with Tresor, ledger and the uh, status cards so I, I think the question i have there is one of kind of like a design question for me is if they are trying to they're trying to use you um, do, why do you have to implement their driver? Can't there be some sort of generic driver that they could implement? So I, I guess so with hardware wallets, every wallet has their own little quirky protocol. So for example, uh, Trezor uses uh, protocol buffers on top of uh, web USB spec. That's a low level USB spec. Then uh, Ledger uses its own custom protocol on top of um, of US, this human interface device spec, that's another USB communication spec. Then the smart cards, well, they are smart cards, so they use some smart card protocol. And uh, there aren't that many protocol, but uh, actually all hardware wallets in, in the Ethereum ecosystem use a different one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I guess uh, the problem is that uh, each of these hardware wallets supports their own little tool that you can use to interact with them. Most of them are some web-based tools, but the problem is that if you if you want to interact with all of them at once, you want support to interact with uh, status smart cards and treasures and ledgers, then you either need to to somehow integrate all of their support into one umbrella project, which, for example, what my crypto and ether wallet does, or um, but that's web-based because they they mostly support or provide support for web stuff. Or we we wanted to go down the other path, where we have native support and we don't didn't want to depend on external dependencies. So we said suck it up and we'll implement the actual the low level USB protocols to speak directly to the hardware. Ah, so that's kind of what you did is you built like a bridge for that that works for these kinds of wallets. Is that correct? Um, so so I mean we 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 not me but uh, uh, Peter and Guillaume and other people implemented these drivers. But uh, Clef is something actually a lot larger than this. Um, would you like, should I do a, a little please. intro about Clef? Please, please, please. Yes, it's it's good stuff. Go. Yeah, so something we realized actually quite a long time ago 
is that, I mean, Geth is a 24-7 piece of software that you put on your node and you leave it there. It's on a, it's a server software. And one of the things that you have there is the key management, private keys, uh, managing your Ethereum accounts. And these two doesn't, they don't go well together. You shouldn't on your 24 seven, uh, server, which tries to talk to as many peers on the, uh, internet as possible. It would be good not to conflict that and also have it being your top secret key manager, managing all your assets. So we kind of, from early on really, well, came to the conclusion that we should separate these two so that we could have a totally standalone uh, key manager or signer. And that is what grew into Clef. Uh, so it took, takes basically all the internal stuff that's already in GAF, um, puts that into a separate uh, binary that you can run as a daemon, uh, preferably though in, uh, in a secure setting, a secure hardware. It could be another virtual server, it could be another physical server, um, and it should expose only the bare minimum to the external world. So we can have an API, uh, an external API, which does not take any kind of password, um, and it, it doesn't ever return anything sensitive. Uh, so even if one, I mean, one of the problems we have today, one of the, the mainnet problems is that people run their nodes and they expose their RPC port and they expose the, the namespace for the personal namespace. And we notice it because they make tickets on the Go Ethereum repo saying they go out of memory. And when we investigate the stack trace, we see, yeah, it's going out of memory because someone is hammering it with unlock request. Please <laughs> unlock this and this. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, decrypting the uh, key store is hard on memory. So if you hammer it hard enough, it will go out of memory, uh, which is a very good thing. Um, but with Clef, we wanted to remove the possibility of doing unlock uh, by instead making it so that each action needs to be manually approved uh, through a UI channel by the user. So any dApp or, or malicious user on the internet who asks, hey, give me your accounts or please sign this transaction, it would need to be manually approved by the user saying, yeah, I approve to list these accounts or only these two accounts and or yes, I approve this uh, transaction. But the problem with this is that most people don't want to manually approve every single little thing. And that's a UX problem. And that's what led to us having unlock in the first place, just to get around this, uh, this very unusable uh, quirk. So how we saw that in Clef is that we also added the JavaScript engine that we, we've been using uh, for Geth for several years and made it possible to set up automatic rules so that if someone wants to uh, browse some dApps and always use uh, he has one account that he always wants to expose to that app, then he can make a right little JavaScript rule to allow that. And similarly, since we have a full JavaScript engine there, we can do uh, more interesting things like auto-approve transactions up which are below a certain value uh, for certain contracts that you 
often interact with and things like that. Uh, and that, yeah, so that's that's basically Clef. Um, and the the way that it integrates with Geth is that you can tell Geth, hey, please start up using this external signer. And then whenever Geth gets a request, it will relay it. It will, it, if it's a transaction, uh, it will take the information as it does today. It will fill with the, the nonce that it, the transaction should have, and it will autofill a, a, a good enough gas price. Um, and then it will pass it on to Clef, which has no no way to see what's happening on the chain. I mean, Clef is just standalone. It doesn't talk to other services. Uh, it gets requests and it just tells the user, hey, you want to approve this? The user says yes, enters password. And Clef sends it back to Gef, which can then broadcast it to the network. Now, am I misunderstanding that and saying that you can actually, on a, a, even a per function level per contract, uh, approve things in advance uh, for signing, is that correct? Um, the, that the reason correct. I bring that up is because of integrated four bytes um, yes. is the por portion of the blog post. So four bytes is a, uh, a function signature database. Um, it basically just takes the uh, CACAC of the um, uh, uh, function signature and it takes the first four bytes of that and uses that as sort of like a identifier, um, you know, uh, odds of collision very low uh, for a function um, so that you can actually kind of associate that with the actual ABI format of that function so that people can make calls and that enables you to sign at the function level of a smart contract automatically um, uh, without manual approval necessarily. Is this correct? Um, uh, yeah, I guess so. It's, it's, that is actually not uh, a use case which we particularly had in mind. Uh, the primary use case for having the four, four byte signature in Clef is that Clef should provide as much context as possible to the user. So when there is a request, hey, do you want to sign this transaction? The user should not just see uh, an opaque bundle of data. Uh, so Clef tells him, hey, this request came in uh, to localhost from this remote IP. It came in over HTTP. Um, I have, when parsing the data, I can see that it matches a function signature called you know, transfer. Uh, and if it is that, then the first one is an integer, which would result to blah, blah way. You know, so we can provide the user with as much context as possible about transactions that are requested. Right. But you are correct that the, it would be possible to write such a rule, yes. Uh, On a per function level, which could be very useful for certain well, apps. But the question I have is... No, I don't, I don't think the rules today have access to four byte database. Yeah, uh, okay. So what you can still do is you can still manually say it that uh, if the, the function signature matches something, then, then approve it. Otherwise, don't approve it. So maybe that part still requires a bit of fiddling. But in you could even now write a rule which says that uh, auto-approve everything that is transfer one reputation token from Augur, but nothing more. So you, you can still you can go into the details, but uh, ABI parsing is not really implemented. So that that one requires a, probably a bit of dirty work, but it's doable. 
Yeah, that sounds kind of useful. Um, the thing that worries me about this, though, uh, and, and maybe I, this is where I just want you to tell me, don't worry. Because uh, <laughs> it, it seems to me like the client might not be the best way to control that kind of permission, uh, permissioning of things. But then again, like clients are supposed to be self-contained, like individual independent entities, um, which, you know, are a person's or a, well, a particular, I don't even know what to call it, uh, a particular user's um, entryway into the Ethereum space. Um, it just seems um, strange to me that some sort of permissioning or approval or denial would be client, like a client so, thing and not like a trustless kind of like mechanism that's kind of decentralized. Does that make sense? So Clef is not part of the client per se. It's cli Clef is a, a standalone key manager. Oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. So it's like a tool yes. that you could run along with you're, you're... Yes. okay okay well that makes sense. the whole point of clef was to please correct me if i'm wrong was to take the keys out of geth so that people who are using the rpc don't can't get access to them and so you basically yes. take all the permissions associated with key management that a normal uh go ethereum client would be doing and just expose it to an api where you can safely secure those keys and just give those permissions accordingly yes and basically, the, the whole root system was to make it possible to have the same nice UX that people have with Unlock, but don't have the same kind of suicidal tendencies yeah. that Unlock gives you. I mean, yeah. Like you don't, you I don't want, want people to, get to rid naively create, like run a geth node um, with the wrong permissions associated with the network level access. And then give access to their keys because well, well because they want a, a better UX. Yeah. So by taking the, the key manager out, it makes it easier. To do yeah. That. And the and the only existing way to have a nice user experience is to do unlock yeah. on your accounts, and that's me. that's horrible. Yeah. This, yeah, that, that actually brings me nicely to the, the, the like uh, transition into like the the change from well not the change but the addition of GraphQL uh, API as well as the RPC and that that also can allow for a much better user experience or at least in terms of um, getting data or building um, UIs on top of the node. Yeah, who built that? What was the decision process around that? That's really cool, and I'm really glad I you did it. Love GraphQL, by the way. So I was super happy when you decided to do that. <laughs> so uh, GraphQL um, that was built by Nick Nick Johnson. Uh, he probably he built it. He built it quite a long time ago. I think he built it in January 2018. So go figure. It took that long to merge. But uh, the um, I guess the problem. The main problem with um, with the RPC that Ethereum shipped is that, uh, again, uh, when Ethereum was designed, it wasn't really designed for such massive contracts such as these decentralized exchanges or ENS or stuff like that. So nobody really figured that Ethereum will blow up so fast into such a large number. And then the API was kind of for these cute little methods that give me this little bit of data, give me that little bit of data. The APIs were, for example, uh, you can um, um, you can retrieve um, a block. You can so the, the, the APIs weren't really granu granular enough 
but uh, those that were, you had to do quite a few, uh, uh, quite a few uh, executions of those. So it was kind of really hard to to properly. If you, if you had a complex query, you want to get all the ENS registrations that completely that successfully completed uh, the auction between two days. Blah blah blah. You had to do gazillions of tiny requests, and a lot of data that you got back was completely useless. For example, you're curious which block uh, an auction took place, but uh, you don't care about the miner of that block. You don't care about what other transactions are included in the, that block, but the RPC still gave it to you. And this meant that you have a huge data traffic going from, from Geth or from the nodes to your client that you just delete afterwards. You just don't care about it. Or if you care about a more complex query, then uh, you have to do a lot of queries. So you, you have this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, just to answer a single question. And essentially GraphQL allows you to formulate your query, send the entire query to Geth, Geth ex executes it, pieces together the data, and then sends you back just the data that you actually were curious about. Thank you, well, uh, for real. <laughs> an issue with that, or maybe, um... Uh, and maybe a consequential side effect is complex queries on top of geth can potentially i don't want to say dos the system but uh because it's difficult to retrieve information not if you're not running an archive node in some circumstances can you imagine people running graphql queries that then like basically just burn the node or, or like make it do a bunch of cycles to try and re re retrieve that data yeah so, so it might be well here to mention that people far too often expose RPC towards untrusted uh, clients. Yes. Uh, the internet. And it's fairly trivial to DOS any node of the, well, DOS it uh, if you have access to the RPC. Um, yeah. So you can do it via GraphQL, I'm sure. You can definitely do it via RPC. Um, that's not hard. And well, it's really not something that we, that Geth can handle by itself. Uh, in order, if, if you want to expose it, then you need to have uh, another layer of uh, protection for that. I look at it this way. Uh, in the centralized world, uh, Apache, for instance, is a web server. And you can, you can open up directories and you can do all sorts of crazy stuff, which could cause... Uh, I don't know. You can um, you can you can completely make rules which would violate the security of your own system, and it's up to the system uh, uh, admin and the you know the the architect of of how you're building your your infrastructure to make sure that your your uh, your services and your servers are secure. Um, because Geth is kind of like an isolated like you, you you don't need this architecture. The architecture is Ethereum. People have the wrong. I don't. I wouldn't say all people, but I would say some people might have the wrong idea of what security means, and that a lot, all the security should be dependent on this application that I download onto my machine. Well, the application enables you to do the things you want to do, and if you want to do something that's stupid, it'll let you. And that's the same thing with Apache. If you install Apache server on your system and you open up your root directory to browsing and writing, uh, well, anyway, uh, then you'll you'll have a bad time. So it to me makes uh, it makes sense that we stop. I kind of look at these clients as less 
even though they are clients, is more like mini web servers. And that they enable me to sort of like, not even host, but just like access or I guess serve data sort of, but you still need to kind of protect everything that you do around opening your, your RPCs to the outside world. Maybe put that behind a firewall or something like that if you care. Um, you know, uh, or use the secure communication protocols already built into the system um, as much as possible and lean on those rather than lean on exposing something to the wider network or building a, a wrapper so that it requires a local client in order to actually access anything. Um, I th yeah, I, I, I guess I mean, a difference between Apache and GAF is that the worst you can do with Apache uh, is, yeah, server file. Yeah, pretty uh, much, yeah. So that's what Apache needs to take into, into account. On GAF, you can say, hey, run this eternal loop for me, please, with three gazillion gas. <laughs> yeah, but so there, there's still a, a lot, a much bigger difference, in, in my opinion, between Apache and GAF. So Apache was made to serve random external people with data, with your data, whereas GAF is kind of the inverse. GAF is kind of your own personal gateway into this public network. So... I mean, it, Geth was not ever designed to be exposed over the internet or exposed publicly to random people that you don't trust. So the fact that Infura, Cloudflare, etc., are running, that's kind of their problem. And they, there are lots of security challenges and lots of denial of service challenges that they have to solve. But that's because they want to build whatever business on top and they, are, they need those functionality. But as an average user, uh, you don't want to expose your Geth nodes to the internet. So from that point onward, it doesn't matter uh, how powerful GraphQL is because you are supposed to be the only one sending queries against it. Yep. And and that's kind of the thing I was saying towards the end there. So I kind of fumbled around what I was getting at a little bit. But the wrapper part, and, and Status does this, is, you, you know, you if you want to, like, if you want to integrate, if you want to build a decentralized application, the best way I've seen to do it is to just, don't assume they have a node already. Package it up, send it along with your application. When they install that, they can actually install it locally like they would Slack. Um, and then you've got what is essentially a standalone ability to, to do this. Now, if the, they already have a node, you should discover that, yada, yada, yada. But the point is, is that um, you know it's, it's, it's not meant to leave your system. The, the secure protocol is there for a reason, and you should use it. And if you're opening up your RPC ports to the world, you're not um, you're not probably using it the way it was intended. Yeah. By the way, just a tiny note um, when you said that uh, uh, one of the best ways, and I completely agree that uh, for many people who are shipping uh, apps for the, or DApps, kind of like Status Augur, uh, probably the best way is to ship uh, ship an internal embedded node and use that. Just uh, to add a side note to the Clef discussion. That is specifically the, the other reason why we wanted to create Clef, so that uh, each of these apps can run their own nodes in however in whatever sync mode and whatever uh, however they fancy, but they should still... So we don't want every single app to manage its own set of keys, because then you just have keys lying all over your file system, and whenever you need to do a backup, you have no idea. Instead, you can have one single Clef instance, and then everybody can ship their node, and you can have 10 different nodes running on your machine. You don't care. You just need to specify that all these nodes should use a single key store, which is lightweight, which is secure. Yeah, that that's that's definitely cool. 
Um, so we, we're kind of running low on time here. Um, uh, but uh, there's a couple of other things I'd like to talk about, uh, specifically the future of light clients um, uh, in, uh, in Ethereum. Uh, and uh, where are we now and where are we going? Um, the checkpoint Oracle and stuff like that. Uh, what, what's, what's the, uh, just give us a quick, quick uh, update on what Geth 1.9 is implemented in terms of that. Yeah, so uh, light, so light client, that's an interesting, um, interesting topic because a lot of people are working on different versions of a light client with different properties. Uh, Geth's version of a light client is uh, kind of a bare bone thing in that uh, it downloads the headers and then cryptographically proves every other data. Now, um, one of the things that we've been working on uh, in Get 1.9 is that the problem is that in theory, light clients should synchronize the same way as full clients do in that they should download the headers from block number zero to block 8 million and verify them or some of them. The problem is that downloading all these headers from zero to eight million is a lot of time and doing the proof of work checks on them, which I said that light clients do is a lot of time. If you, if you go with ultra light clients, it's still a lot of time to verify digital signatures for eight million things. And then uh, quite a long time ago, we introduced the concept of these um, little snapshots, I think Jolt called them CHDs. And the idea is that in every Geth release, we embed a small snapshot of where the network is at currently. And then the light clients can actually start syncing from that point onward. So for example, if you download Geth, I don't know, 1.8.15, then maybe the starting snapshot will be block 7 million. I just gave a number. And then instead of having to download all the headers from 0 to 8 million, you just need to download the headers from 7 million to 8 million. Now, this works really nicely. Whenever we do a fresh release, you get a fresh CHT, you can synchronize in one minute. But what happens if uh, you are running a light client for Augur? You have your Augur app shipped um, now, for example, just released today. And then you're going to use the same Augur app for half a year or for one year. Now, the problem is that um, the light client, so it, it probably they won't get a new guest light client embedded into it. They will use the same old one. So if for some reason you need to resynchronize your Augur app, then you will need to re-import all the blocks or reprocess all the block headers from this point onward. And um, the point of the checkpoint oracle was what we try to solve is to dynamically to allow clients to dynamically access fresh CHTs, fresh snapshots, so that when you start up your old light client. It won't have to re-import all the headers from 7 million. Rather, it can immediately check that, oh, we're currently at block 9 million. Let's download from here onward. So it's kind of like this dynamic uh, CHD. And and so the the question I have is, uh, who gets to be a checkpoint? And how do I know that they're all cool? So the checkpoints... Um, so, checkpoint admin, I should say. So with checkpoints, you kind of tr need to trust the developers. So uh, we are shipping CHDs with Geth. So it means that if you are using Geth, you are already trusting us with the starting checkpoints for the light client. Now, the same people that, uh, that you are trusting already with your initial snapshots or initial starting points, uh, the same people are uh, signers for this checkpoint oracle. And this, uh, so in theory, what we could do, so 
imagine this checkpoint oracle we would run a web server somewhere on some ethereum foundation website which just gives you the latest snapshot and then we can digitally sign it in theory this would be enough because your client your light client can download this uh, this uh, random snapshot from some random website and uh, and it can check a digital signature that indeed the geth developer signed it or enough of the geth developer signed it so it should be valid the problem is that you don't really want that sort of centralization you don't want uh, geth nodes to reach out to a central website so actually what we did is that we used the ethereum chain itself as the central website so we deployed a checkpoint oracle contract and the get developers can with enough signatures can publish a new um, snapshot into this checkpoint oracle and the fun the the interesting catch is how do you so we use the ethereum chain to publish the snapshot but the light client needs to retrieve the snapshot before it has the chain so to get the chain you need the chain it's a bit of a messed up situation and the solution was actually that uh, um, whenever we do a transaction to publish a new snapshot, we embed a lot of data into it. We embed all the signatures into it. We embed recent blocks into it. We essentially there's every single data that uh, that the CHT needs to contain. We embed in a single transaction, and then light clients can blindly just ask a random light server in the network okay give me the latest chd you get back the latest chd which is completely untrusted you have no clue but you have all the data there to actually verify that the geth developers signed it and then you have you can the code can trust it that the the, the chd contains the properly signed uh, um, well it is properly signed i guess that's that's the point so when when you upload oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but the uh, i thought you were done when you upload these checkpoints to the smart contract you're actually putting the data directly into the smart contract um so uh do you do, you do this manually uh is this an automated regular thing or is it uh because i would assume you'd want to do it at times when it's you know cheapest to, to do so um even though you've got tons of eth in reserve and it shouldn't be that big of a deal like what like you know, it still makes sense that if you were going to do it, you'd probably just do it at a time when it's optimal. Um, do you manually push these things or? So this thing is, um, so the CHGs are updated once every week or so. So it's not, uh, so that's the, the CHGs are updated every 32,000 blocks. Oh, that, okay. Okay. That's the minimum. But realistically, but we don't do that. So what we do currently is that when when I do a release, we push out new CHTs hard coded into the block. I'm sorry, into the client, and simultaneously we just publish the CHTs into the into the chain. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. We maybe one transaction every two weeks, so it doesn't really matter. So uh, along, I don't know if you remember this, but it was sometime last year I talked to you. We worked together on solving some Puppeth issues. Um, I was since I have you on the horn here. Uh, what is the status of Puppeth? Um, how's that coming along? Um, you know, I, I mean, I got it to work. It was it was good. Although there were still some issues with, for instance, there's no Explorer that I can use on a uh, a private chain. Um, it looks like the POA network lends us an Explorer. So um, maybe you could give me an update on Puppeth. So Puppeth is. Um... I mean, not much development is going into Puppet. It's kind of, I wouldn't say kind of done, but uh, 
it can deploy uh, your network. It can it can configure a Genesis block for proof of work network or click proof of authority. It can deploy boot nodes, uh, status page signers. Um, so more or less, it can deploy the entire internet, uh, the entire entire Ethereum infrastructure. And uh, I think two things that are kind of missing or were kind of missing up until now is uh, a block explorer and the the wallet. The wallet is, yeah, I mean, it's it's nicety, but it's not that necessary. However, a block explorer is necessary. So if you if you're on a private network and you have no clue what your network is doing, then it's it's hard. And uh, up until now, Etherscan and the other um, block explorer providers, they were kind enough to run block explorers for all the test networks. But uh, but if I want to run my own little private network for a hackathon, then obviously nobody's going to run a block explorer for my hackathon. And this is where, uh, where uh, the POA network people and block scout comes in. That I think last week, somewhere in October that last year, uh, they published an open source block explorer called Block Scout, based I think it's based on Elixir. And uh, essentially, that's when we got the idea that finally there is a possible open source, actually a working open source block explorer that we could integrate into Puppet. And uh, Gary worked quite a lot on that to actually pull it off. But now Puppet does support deploying a more or less working uh, block explorer. So it's um, we were kind of happy about that. It, it moved Puppet one step closer to the dream. But I think it's important to, to realize that Puppet will always be this hacky thing. So it, it's meant for hackathons. It's meant for test networks. It's meant for your little play private network. It's not meant for production. Yeah, I and felt that it was... There's also... Yeah, I was going to say, there's also this kind of inherent bit rot in Puppet, uh, since it also configures other clients. And other clients move on and they change the, the parameters and they change the configuration specs. So, yeah, there, there's always the need to kind of update Puppet with, okay, so well, let's change this, that. And um, there may be times when it doesn't pull a function with the latest versions of everything. Yeah, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna test a uh, decentralized application just to get it off the ground, I don't want to do it on mainnet. And honestly, the test network is not something that I want to develop on either. I want fast block times. I want to iterate quickly, and I want my team to be able to iterate quickly as well. I don't want them to struggle. I want to do something quick that it could just get up and going and say, "Here, just interface to this, make it work." Uh, it'll it'll work. And even though it's not the same as the regular network, I can make it that way, I guess. But uh, I find that that having um, a, the ability to just deploy a network is extremely useful in practical real world situations when you're trying to get something off the ground, um, just personally. Uh, so I appreciate yeah. that work a lot, you know? I guess one of the, if, if you were asked, if, if somebody would ask me what the best purpose of Puppet is nowadays, uh, I would probably say that if you want to run uh, a development environment inside your own company where you have yep, yep, yep. 10 people or 50 people or 200 people, I don't know, I said the number uh, of developers who want to use it, that's that's a perfect puppet scenario because there you don't really want to screw around with Kubernetes and setting up really fancy clusters and everything. If everything goes to crap, then who cares? It's fine. But uh, but you can really fast. You can in, in ten minutes spin up a network and 
have all your people on it. Whoa, 10 minutes. I don't know about that. Have you seen, unless you've made a lot of changes. Have you seen my, uh, have you seen my uh, article on, on Puff Up? Uh, I did a tutorial on it last year and it takes a good four to six hours still to set up a network. Um, just because, uh, most of the, just a lot of little instructions you have to do, um, at least with click. Um, I'm not sure about like doing a, a, a faux, um, you know, main net, but we just do it a proof of authority. So, uh, this or that it's, it's, it takes a little time still, um, yeah. log into the servers and still do, still do the pop of commands and et cetera, et cetera. Um, configure the ser whole server environment to actually deploy. So one thing that would be great is if there was just like AWS or Azure, like Ansible cookbooks to just deploy a network. Like that would be super. Um, but, uh, you know, I probably should have wound up doing that now that I think about it. But, um, you know, it still takes a bit of time, but it's way less time than doing it manually. Like way less. It takes it from like a four-day project to, you know, a half a day. So that's great. I guess so. Uh, one one important thing is the, with Puppet is that I try to make it as a as a maintenance thing too. So it's not just about deploying the thing, but also maintaining it. So, for example, when there's a new fork rolled out, then Puppet can actually support uh, updating the the Genesis block. Or sorry, not the Genesis block, the chain configuration with the new fork definition. So you can say that okay, if in one week I want to enable Byzantium or Istanbul, or uh, and then it can. Uh, redeploy boot nodes with fresh versions of Geth. It can, uh, so the idea is that you, it's not just assembling the initial network because that could be easily done, but also maintaining that afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I guess people don't know this, but Peter, you you basically uh, maintain Rinkeby using Puppet, right? Yes. Well, Puppet was actually made for Rinkeby. So the reason I, I wrote that is because when I was deploying Rinkaby, it was, I, I really, honestly, I probably redeployed it 10 times a day after provisioning the necessary machines, yes. So there, usually I was developing click, I found some issues, redeployed the whole thing, the whole network got stuck, I redeployed the whole thing, the whole network fell apart, redeployed the whole thing. And uh, after you do it three times, you realize that it's impossible to keep doing this manually. So, um, so I just started writing a tool and then we figured that, well, if we are going to use this tool and it's legitimately useful for us, then might as well release it, which seemed uh, like a great idea initially. Then it turned out it's a horrible idea because I needed to actually make it nice. You had to maintain it, yeah. <laughs> Here's this awesome thing I built. Oh, wait, now I'm responsible for it? Oh, no. <laughs> hey, hey, here's my kid, you know, <laughs> let me... <laughs> <laughs> let me give birth to a child and then just let it let it go off on its own. Yeah, that doesn't work that way. Um, yes. uh, Double-edged sword, but uh, I think all in all, the it's it's worth it. It was worth it. I think it helps a lot of people. Um, and I got a lot of comments on that article. So uh, like a lot of people were trying to use Puppeth, and um, and really, I think uh, I think it was a great work, and I really appreciate it because uh, it helped me a whole lot. Cause I had to take the servers completely down and then rebuild the whole network, the VPC and stuff. So like, that's probably why it took me longer than you to say redeploy. So I had to literally tear down entire servers in order and rebuild them and rebuild the private, you know, the whole, um, AWS firewalls and stuff just to, in, just to get it going, um, every time. And it was a pain. Um, and then to have that part, that tail end of, of just launching the network, like removed, 
because I know I had we had we had actually built um, on a couple projects prior to in 2017. Um, I want to say it's, yeah, late 2017, early 2018, we built some pretty major deployment stuff uh, for the company I was working with. Um, I can't get into any details about it, but basically we deployed a global network um, several times and we need to automate that process and yada, yada, yada. Um, and uh, it was, uh, it, it took a guy a long, I mean, I had a sysadmin working on it and it took a long time each time just to get that going and Puppeth made things so much easier. So I really appreciate it. Um, so at the, uh, the end of the article, you seem to have some, uh, vision of the future with regard to discovery protocol. Um, maybe you could go over a little bit about what has happened and what is going to happen um, uh, with uh, discovery, no discovery. Martin, wanna take that away? Mm, I think it's, the question is more about the, um, your schema mm -hmm. there, yeah. not the new discovery protocol, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. It's um, the ENR well, records. I think that's ENR what, records uh, was the latter half. About. It, it actually says um, it, it actually goes through what we're trying to do. Uh, that you're 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 constructing a brand new vision. I wanted you to go over that brand new vision, but after you described the brand new vision, there was also this part of the ENR records was like, but in transition towards that, we've already built the ENR records, and here's what they are. So maybe we could go over a little, like tell that story. Yeah. Okay. So, I guess um, not. Not many people. So, uh, a lot of people kind of nowadays assume that Ethereum just works and they just need to work on the DApps. And uh, there are a few people who kind of understand that the base layer needs a lot of work. But most, even most of those people that realize that Ethereum still needs a lot of work, they kind of assume that. Well, yeah, but networking that's done. I mean, that's been done for twenty years. So what What can you do with networking? It's just you wire it together and it's magic. But um, the problem is that there are still a lot of challenges around uh, around decentralized protocol that may not be not be so obvious to somebody who actually didn't implement one of them. For example, one of the biggest challenges in a in a decentralized protocol is okay, I start up my machine, I install Geth or Parity or whatever, and boom, I want to sync. And then your node goes like, oh, what the fuck? And who am I supposed to sync against? And that is quite a hard problem. So how do you find somebody on the internet that is going to give you data? And um, generally, this is uh, an entire suite of problems. And uh, there are a lot of different uh, mechanisms or protocols to discover other people in the network. And Ethereum 2 had, uh, originally when Ethereum was designed, we shipped uh, a fairly simplistic discovery protocol. What you could, what you did is there are a few hard-coded servers, I don't know, 10, 20 servers hard-coded in dual clients, and you just reach out to those servers and tell them that, okay, here, my name is whatever, please give me peers to connect to. And then they give you 100 peers, and then you try to connect to those and tell them that, hey, please give me 100 more peers. And gradually you try to find people who are still running nodes in the network. And this kind of works in a simplistic scenario, but then all of a sudden Ethereum grows, you launch different test networks, you launch private networks, and all of a sudden asking somebody, please give me 10 or 100 Ethereum peers is worthless because 
you actually don't want 100 Ethereum peers. You want 100 light servers on the Rinkeby test network. And that's a completely different question than just give me 100 peers. And the, the problem is that uh, Ethereum mainnet kind of is happily chugging along. So if you want to synchronize with mainnet as a full node, it's easy. But if you want to find more specific peers, then, um, then things get very, very messy. And um, a couple of years ago, Jolt started working on a new version of Discovery Protocol where you could advertise some topics. You can advertise that, hey, I'm a light server. Hey, I'm a light server at this particular hash. And then the protocol allowed other nodes to look up these advertisements, but it was kind of a proof of concept. It, it didn't really go anywhere. And um, with the advent of uh, Ethereum 2.0, however, this problem all of a sudden became a lot more serious because in Ethereum 2.0, you would like to have different shards. So you, if, if we want to split the chain into 1,000 1, shards, then it means that all of a sudden, when you want to synchronize with the Ethereum network, you don't want to synchronize with some random node. You want to synchronize with a node that's in a specific shard. Or maybe you want to synchronize with a node that's in a specific shard in a specific testnet that has light server capabilities, etc. And then you get these really complex uh, requirements. And then all of a sudden, you need to implement a way to find remote machines, remote computers in the world on the internet that match your criteria. And essentially the, the discovery protocol version five is all around, how do you define these criteria? How do you make them searchable? How do you share them? How do you make it not docible? So it's a, that's a whole huge topic. But uh, one of the tiny pieces of it is, um, well, the, the big part, the hard part is how do you make it searchable? The easy part is how do you publish the data in the first place? And uh, that's what uh, what the ENRs, the Ethereum node records, I think. I always mess that up, so maybe it's not. It's Ethereum node, node records. Okay. <laughs> uh, nope, it's singular. Ethereum node record. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so ENR was a step towards that direction that uh, uh, before we can actually search for these complex criteria, we need a way to publish them into the network. And then Felix created this uh, idea of ENRs where every node can define kind of like this mini key value data set. They can put arbitrary data in it and they can just make this available into the network. And then the discovery protocol can query this data and I can retrieve your ENR record. And then based on that, I can figure out whether I want to connect to you or not. Now, if a discovery protocol version five, the complexity there would be that you should be able to query nodes. So you should be able to tell the discovery protocol, give me Rinkeby light servers. But currently we're only at discovery version four, which is a, a simplified version. We can make it available, but we cannot search it. And uh, this might look uh, useless, from an initial perspective, but the, the use in it is that uh, um, I, so currently establishing a TCP connection, a full Ethereum TCP connection is really expensive. It's a cryptographic connection. It takes a lot of time. If the remote node doesn't have enough slots, then you get rejected immediately. I mean, you get rejected after you make the TCP handshake. And the, um, the advantage of these ENRs would be that I don't have to connect to you to figure out that you're a bad peer. 
So I can just retrieve your ENR record. That's a tiny UDP round trip. It will take, it will be almost instantaneous. You don't need to process anything. You just give me back a record that you have on store. And based on that, I can immediately filter out 99% of the network as useless. And, um, and that will actually enable smaller networks or nodes with uh, quirky requirements to, to find good nodes a lot faster. I mean, that's... And you think this protocol will also be used for the 2.0 version? Is that what I was understanding you to say? Also, by the way, it is plural in our, in our records. It's just that one part in the article where it was singular when I read it. So I was like, oh, dang. But anyway, thank you. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're, we're a fun show. Anyway, uh, the, uh, the, you're saying this is something that's being planned to help and assist with Ethereum 2.0. Is that something I misunderstood or? No, no. So that's actually the discovery the, the next version of discovery protocol. One of the main requirements is to support Ethereum 2.0. So that brings me to another kind of question I have. Um, and I know we're kind of running late here. I hope, I hope this is okay with you guys. Um, but yeah. uh, Ethereum 2.0. Is Geth going to support, I mean, that, like, or are there going to be other, like, there's Nimbus, there's Prismatic Labs, uh, some other, uh, there's there's implementations of, of tests, clients for F2.0. Um, is Geth going to be, like, the official F, F2.0, like, thing? And is 1.9 going to start being 2.0 when you start supporting the, um, thing zero testnet. Yes. Yeah, so to answer that question, uh, Geth, as in Geth itself, the current Geth code base will never be an Ethereum 2.0 client, because uh, I mean Ethereum one and Ethereum two is kind of apart from sharing the same name, they are more or less completely different things. Yes. Yeah. From this perspective. Uh, Trying to support Ethereum 2.0 within Geth, it would be a suicide from two perspectives. One of them, it would be injecting a whole lot of code into an already messy system. And the second part would be touching and messing around with critical stuff that uh, that can have really catastrophic consequences. So the Geth, Geth binary itself will probably never support Ethereum 2.0. It, it wasn't really meant to support it. But um, we did have quite a lot of discussions in uh, cherry picking the internals of Geth. For example, the RPC, the networking discovery protocol, uh, storage layers, etc., and building an Ethereum 2.0 client out of those. So we do have a lot of very valuable um, components. And components that I, we think can be used, can be reused, but we wouldn't we wouldn't make Geth the Ethereum 2.0 client. Rather, we would build an Ethereum 2.0 client out of the pieces of Geth. That makes sense. That's, that makes sense. Yeah. From a security perspective, that's definitely the way to go. You don't want to kind of taint the secure code base of Geth by trying to input, by trying to tack on the very different architectural differences of uh, F 2.0. So you're gonna call it F plus <laughs> plus. But um, the working name is Firefly. Jeez, dude. Like that. you, 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 oh, that's I did actually read that. That's funny. So funny. That was the name of a project I did in 2017 on Ethereum. Anyway, well, yeah. I think uh, this is probably a, a decent way to start wrapping up. Um, just there, go ahead. 
No, I just want to uh, answer one more question. I think that's kind of important that uh, it was, um, you asked whether uh, this would be a, an official Ethereum 2.0 client. And I think from the Ethereum Foundation's perspective, it's kind of important that they, what I'm seeing is that they don't really want to have an official client. Rather, they want to support multiple teams. I expect that uh, when Ethereum 2.0 launches, it will be the same as with Ethereum 1, that uh, most of the clients will die out. And uh, it's, I mean, it's questionable which clients will be the last man standing, so to say. So um, I I'm almost certain that there won't be 20 clients. And realistically, maybe if there yeah. will be full-fledged ones, then we're happy. When I said official, I meant like, the one that's funded by the Ethereum Foundation as only and only the Ethereum Foundation, I guess if that makes they don't have a company. Like like Geth is not built by a like a, a separate organization, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's a bit questionable. So currently we would like to create to build an Ethereum 2.0 client. It would be nice if we got to the point where it's actually stable enough to say to the fund to tell the foundation that hey fund it because you need it but uh, i think uh, realistically it's also important to emphasize that uh, for us one of the primary goals is to keep ethereum one alive so as much as i would like to work on ethereum 2.0 full time i think we can't ethereum ethereum one isn't in a state where you can just leave it and hope that it will be there in five years time. So there are still yeah. a lot of challenges to solve. And uh, I think it would be a bit irresponsible, at least for me personally, to switch away to a different project. Yeah, and something Lucian brought up is that people were giving you guys crap on Twitter for even building 1.9. They're like, why aren't you just focusing on 2.0? Which I think pretty much unanimously everybody said was dumb. Um, but I, I still, I, uh, I, I think you're right. There's a lot of money still flowing through Ethereum and it doesn't stop just because somebody has a very good idea, but it's still in a very prototype, very research phase for F, you know, 2.0. Um, and, and it's not, it's not done yet. And, you know, F 1.0 is driving an economy and it's important to keep that economy running. So I guess the one of the big misunderstandings around ETH 2.0 is that uh, I've seen it on Twitter all over the place that, ooh, Ethereum 2.0 is launching in January or slated to launch oh, in January. <laughs> and, nope. I, mean, I mean, maybe something will launch in January, but I think most people who are saying that Ethereum 2.0 is launching in January, they don't realize what is actually launching. Because the thing that... Ethereum is launching in January, wants to launch is phase zero, which is just empty chains creating blocks. So it will have absolutely zero functionality or zero transactional capability. And uh, the, when Ethereum 2.0 will actually reach the feature set of Ethereum 1, that's a big question mark. So I, I feel mean, like the standard was set because of like Vitalik put out his white paper in what to early 2014. Um, is that right? And then it wasn't until what June, maybe 2015. Is that right? That Ethereum launched. I, I don't know. I can't remember timelines very well. Um, but you know, that was like a, a very short period of time to create what is built an entire ecosystem 
of, I mean, the second largest cryptocurrency in market cap is Ethereum. And it only took a, it took a, like a year and a half to build it. So people mentally in their mind go, oh, wow, it shouldn't really take that long. <laughs> like that's, that's what I, I feel like is the case. But in reality, first off, Ethereum 2.0 is an order of magnitude more um, advanced than, I, I don't know if advanced, advanced, yeah, let's use the word advanced. I don't want to use the word, yeah, it is complex. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, I, yeah, I think complex, but you know, it's an order of magnitude more difficult to build from an engineering standpoint. There's a lot more moving parts for things to go wrong, um, a lot more testing that will need to be done, a lot more process oriented to build it. Um, there's a lot of lessons that they need to, they, they probably are going to take this opportunity to kind of correct. Um, and some of those revolving around maybe smart contracts um, on the Ethereum 2.0 chain. I know there's a lot of talk of Ewasm. If it's Ewasm, then that's that's a whole other beast that they've got to go through. It's not just, uh, you know, Gavin writing Solidity or something. It's it's literally like this is, this is um, you, you just, you you know, we got, we got to take it a little more, be a little more, take this opportunity to be more careful. Um, but also, you know, um, it, it, it was kind of unreasonable to build Ethereum in a year and a half. And they did it anyway. That was the cool feat in my mind in that it was such a tremendous project. It had such a massive impact on the world. And they did it in a very, very, very short period of time. And from a you know, eighteen uh, year old, so how old? I don't know how old he was, but co you know, college student from from Waterloo to to just drop his life and go do this. I mean, that's impressive feat to do it in a year and a half and get a team surrounding him and get everything working. Um, and everybody behind the vision, like it, it was an impressive feat. Um, mm -hmm. You can't you can't expect that kind of magic to happen twice. This is a serious engineering project. It takes serious time. It takes serious rigor. And I think that's not to say that Ethereum wasn't, but I think that uh, people just have unrealistic expectations because of the history. Um, and, you know, well, it's just an uphill battle with that. No big deal. But hopefully it doesn't impact the market price too much. But that's that's what it is. And I think just to add to that one Essentially, Ethereum 2.0 attempts to fix all the problems of Ethereum 1, which kind of implies that uh, Ethereum 1 was kind of a bit simplistic compared to what it should have been. So Ethereum 2.0 is by design a lot more, a lot more. Impressive. Let's yeah. use, it's going to be impressive when it's out. It's just yeah. give it time to bake. Yeah, and just one more thought around that is I think it's also important to realize that when Ethereum launched, it had a, well, okay, this is going to sound a bit strong. It had a value of zero. I mean, it was a completely new project. It completely new chain. You could do whatever. Um, yes, it yep, did yep. have some initial value, but um, you did. So there was nothing at risk. Whereas currently you have an entire 20 something billion thing at risk so it's it's not the same thing you don't you don't just hacker i remember way back when we were uh, uh, preparing for frontier and then you vitalik figured out that uh, okay, we need to change some rules in the evm and then he just went into the C go code base and c code base and just pushed a commit to change a parameter just go there boom done it's changed and you don't do that nowadays so no. And I think people need to appreciate, and 
be grateful for and happy about the fact it's taking longer. And I think that's a harder narrative to spin because people are by nature impatient, but to tell them that, to, to, to explain to them that this is going to result in something magnificent. And if you give it the right time and stop pushing us to just release 2.0, like, hurry up, oh, you know, like you're gonna, you're gonna have a better product and uh, invest in that product by investing in the Ethereum Foundation and then making this happen. And, and the other groups that are pushing such as Status, such as Prismatic Labs, pushing their own version of a light, uh, uh, Ethereum 2.0 client. Like it's, uh, you know, if you wanna see it happen, although you can't make it go faster with more developers, you sure could make those developers' lives a lot more comfortable so that they can do better work. Well, based on all of that, which I heavily agree upon, um, we should start to wrap. Are there any questions that uh, you would have liked us to ask you about any of this or anything else you feel strongly about that we didn't get around to? Yeah, what are the new cool features that you guys are hoping to, uh, looking forward to? Uh, with regards to death or no, no yeah so that so that question i can answer that now that i asked it myself so there are two unicorns that we've been chasing one of them is pruning which peter has spent quite a lot of time uh, trying to get to work i mean more permanent pruning than the in-memory pruning that we have now and the other one is the new sync protocol to replace the current fast sync which is, and that's new sync protocols are being worked at in uh, various groups. And that is something that hopefully will reduce sync times and scale better uh, in the future. So the, I guess the, the reason Martin called them unicorns is because uh, they are, so from the outside, it kind of looks obvious that, okay, make it sync faster or make it delete more data. <laughs> And the what so for example, up until now, I actually wrote I think six or seven pruning algorithms that all of them kind of worked. And or uh, synchronization wise, I think maybe I wrote two more synchronization protocols that actually worked that were implemented fully. The problem with both these unicorn problems or challenges is that uh, uh, there are a lot of possible solutions that are that would be workable now but would break down in two years time and then there's simply no reason to implement something that we know will take three months to implement and then after one and a half years we know that it will die so that this is why these are kind of considered the unicorn problems because we're trying to find a solution that can scale as long as geth stays alive which is certainly longer than two years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you Hopefully. know, do you feel like uh, people are going to transition on the ETH 2.0? I know that it's kind of premature to talk about that stuff, but do you feel like Geth is going to have to support those features to get that transition happening? Because mm. there's talk about moving, you know, the burn and whatnot. That's more um, along a smart contract development than, than the actual node. Is it? Oh, okay. I didn't know it was all based on the smart contract. Um, that makes sense now, though. Okay, cool. Well, so if there's any, so probably if there if there's some features needed to help onboard people from Ethereum 1 to Ethereum 2, then yeah, sure, definitely Geth will ship whatever is needed to help. 
but um, realistically, I would expect that after Ethereum 2.0 is usable and as in reaches feature parity with Ethereum 1, even after that, I would expect that uh, unless there's some master plan to murder Ethereum 1 in its track, I expect Ethereum 1 to, to live for quite a long time. I agree wholeheartedly. There's, a, there's probably a whole cohort of community that doesn't want to switch to 2.0 and would rather keep their business and value on the 1.0 chain. And if that's the case, then the client will need to be maintained in order to keep the network alive. Ah, uh, dang. What happens if Ethereum 1.0 becomes the new ETC? Ah, oh, bro. You never know. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the whole thing about this, this technology is that those things are capable. Um, yeah. I... Go ahead. I do think that uh, it's an interesting question, but I do think that uh, one of the big competitors of Ethereum 2 is actually Ethereum 1. Yeah, yeah. that's the weird part about it, you know? Um, I, I do see that. That's exactly how I, I view it. But it's also like this collaborative competitor. And it's not like, hmm, the problem is though, like people got money and they want it. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Uh, but we got a couple of years to work that out. So it's a politics game. Don't worry about that. Just be an engineer. Yeah, that's, that's the key. So the only way I so essentially I see two possibilities. One of them is Ethereum one lives alongside Ethereum two point indefinitely or until people lose interest. And the other is that if there's a master plan to I wouldn't call it murder Ethereum one, but to somehow make it part of Ethereum two from the not not sunset, rather to completely transition everything into Ethereum yeah. two point. So to somehow instantly shut down one and the boot up the other. Yeah. There was talk about storing a in a contract as a base layer for the transition, a the entire state of Ethereum um, one or something like that. I can't remember the exact details that, and that doesn't sound right now that I'm saying it out loud. Um, but the, to basically make Ethereum one a shard on Ethereum two. Um, in some way, just just from this point forward, the state exists. But I feel like there's so much negotiation around that, and the that it really has an air of centralization to make that decision making process on behalf of Ethereum users. In other words, I feel like they would have to vote that in somehow. Um, so uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see how that plays out. Honestly, I personally don't really like that idea. Uh, from an engineering perspective, Ethereum one built up an immense amount of technical debt. Um, essentially, we have six forks defined. We have all the IPs. We have all stuff that we have for the state try is a bit weird. It doesn't really scale. And uh, maybe if Ethereum, Ethereum 2.0 launches, I would prefer if they would solve these issues instead of somehow integrating or bringing the issues into the new system. Yeah. Same here. Yeah, I thought the idea though was just copy this the, the data of the state over. Um, so transitions. I don't know. Either way, yeah, I kind of agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, but so it, unless you, so the problem is you cannot really make one chain instantly stop and the other one pick it up from where you where you go left off. Yeah, so the coordination it, issue of all that is 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 not tractable. Yeah, so you could say that okay, we're going to take the state of Ethereum at block. I don't know. 20,000, 20 million, sorry, I just said a number. And we're going to snapshot that into Ethereum 2.0. Okay, but what happens if I made a transaction in block 20 million and one? 
Okay, am I screwed? So it's. I don't know. It's just going to have to be individuals' decisions to move over to transfer their value from one to two, and then eventually you'll have uh, the port, the majority of people working on two to make one not very feasible to to kind of have a community around. If there's no other real viable scenario of of, of that moving of. that value over. We know brilliant stuff comes up all the time. Maybe maybe somebody will find find an idea, but at the moment, I kind of inclined to agree with what Corey just said. But even then, it's a you you have a big problem because if you can take value over, so let's let's suppose you can port Ether one to one over from Ethereum one to Ethereum two, then uh, eventually, why would anyone stop mining Ethereum one if you take the mining reward and push it into Ethereum two? So the only way is to stop giving out mining rewards. But if you stop giving out mining rewards, then uh, you actually need to move everybody over before that, a long time before that. Otherwise, when miners switch off, the network will become completely uh, unsecure. But when, when I thought Ethereum 1.0 is not even going to have miners at that point. It's going to be validators. It's all going to be proof of stake. 1.0 is, will not. 1.0 is no, no longer going to have proof of stake. Why would it? Proof of stake is not part of 1.0. I guess not. Uh, I just I thought that was the original plan. I thought they were still going with that. Yeah. Uh, so the original plan was uh, to switch over to Casper or Shasper or not sure what the last name was. <laughs> but um, I don't know. So that one. I think at a certain point, uh, the researchers kind of axed that idea because they said that it it takes. A, a lot of effort to try to somehow uh, gut out Ethereum 1 and uh, maybe it's just better to go with Ethereum 2 and not care about that aspect. So I remember yeah. that conversation just thought that that meant that they were going to be using Ethereum 2 as a research bed for that, but I guess, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it makes more sense. So there's no plan to remove proof of work from Ethereum 1 anymore. Okay, got it. I, I would be happy, but uh, you know, from a from a playing devil's advocate, uh, if you remove proof of work from Ethereum one and switch over to a proof of stake, then you actually make it even harder for uh, for Ethereum two to survive. Yeah, because... why, would you, why would you change the kind of security of a of a network while transitioning to a different like unproven network at the same time? No, no. So I, I would. So the problem is that if you do change it successfully. Then uh, you often have <laughs> you have an even stronger competitor. Yeah, that's, that's an aspect of that too. I think we're moving on to like a completely different conversation here, and I, yeah. I want to say we've taken up too much of your time already. Um, I definitely appreciate the work that you both do uh, for the ecosystem. Uh, it's it's I would I would say we wouldn't be here without um, the work of the Ethereum Foundation and 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 Geth being the mainstay of the clients that support consensus and, and the network itself. So thank you for your work. We look forward to the even more massive improvements you continue to make on death and uh, hope to have you back on the show. I uh, don't expect silver bullets. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having us. Well, thank yep. you for coming on, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was really nice to chat with you.